on the Pothamist. On the Pothamist, officially. Officially, yes. And today we have James Varner, my Smang bro. Smang bros for life, bud. We've played together in a lot of different projects now. You know, the rhythm section uh, is the heartbeat of the band, my guy. It is. It is. I've, I've played with many drummers over a lifetime, and you're definitely one of my favorites, <laughs> if not my favorite. Because playing with you, dude, it's just so f- fucking easy. And also, uh, your attitude is good. I've never once seen you like anxious, freaked out, angry, upset. You're very zen. I, I save that for my time at home alone. <laughs> <laughs> when I'm in front of people in a social situation, it's generally, you know, keep it mellow. Because in my in experience um, in musical settings, there can be a lot of anxiety um, from any member of the group. Um, and in my experience, playing with people, having one person in the group that is that has that is the baseline, that is the mellow baseline, it really sets the tone for the rest of the group. And if I can be that guy, I'm there. Well, every project I've played in with you, you've always been that guy. Um, and it's been helpful to me because I never have to worry ever about playing with you. I know you're going to be ready. I know you're going to be mellow. Um, and I know you're going to have good ideas, too. You provide a little extra something, you know. Uh, you're, you're able to, to take what's there and then also throw it back at someone with a little something extra. My dude. I, I can't ask for a better compliment. Thank, seriously, thank you. You're, You're welcome. Making me blush. I love you, James. I love you so much. Love you too, Taylor. And uh, if I can, you know, fluff your bags a little bit, um, you know, pay, playing with a bass player that uh, intuitively understands where I'm going and then meets me at the end point that somehow got decided between us, you know, like, like there's an idea, there's a phrase, if you will, and then... Um, I, I kind of feel like it should go this way, and then seeing you react and meeting me halfway at that point, it just makes all the difference. Well, it makes it easy for me. You know, I, I mean, that's the, that's the thing. You make me sound better than I am. Like, that's how I always feel about playing with good drummers. And my favorite thing that you do is when you do those fills that are out of time, that you slow down, you know what I'm talking about? Just a, just a smidge over the bar. Just yeah. a smidge. Not enough to, like, break, like, where the one is, but, like... To, to place the next one at the right point where it needs to be. Where did you learn that from? Um, Was there a certain player you were trying to emulate when you started doing that? You use it sparingly. For sure. I, I, I will if, say that, but you use it tastefully. It's, uh, maybe it comes from, because I'm in no way what you would call like a, like a, like a technical melodic style drummer. You uh-huh. know, like you think of like these these um these metal bands like Animals as Leaders, for instance, you know, their drummer Matt Gartska, he is a lot of times way over the bar. You know, they end up ending in the same place, but weird time signatures and stuff like that. You know, so I I don't want to go that far with it, but like taking it to a place where it's like there's like this open air feeling that's like, oh shit, where are we going? And then for us to all click in at a certain point, it just like makes the whole idea. Well, I know whenever you do that to just find the one now. Just find the one. Just keep it. Where's the one? 
And we all meet here. Cool. Awesome. <laughs> I always loved to, when we were playing with Dustin Sellers, there was that one song that we did the triplets of doom on. Oh, what was the name of that song? Um, I can't remember what the name of the song was, but we always hit those triplets of doom and I loved it. It was always dude. so tight, man. And that's what I love about playing with you. Cause it's like, so it's really easy to be tight with you. You know, that's, that's why I, uh, I choose to play in the groups that I want to and like playing with the people that I do is because when it's easy to be tight with someone, it just, it makes everything that comes after that so much easier. You know, when you're, we've all been there playing in a group of strangers, you know, you don't know any of the guys that are in the room with you, except for maybe one guy who introduced you to the band and maybe you're there or you're just there to jam or something like that. Um, And it can take some time to lock in and like get tight and understand the other person's cues. That's another thing. Like, Mm -hmm. it's not all about like the notes that you're playing to understand the cues. It's like making eye contact and like looking at the person's body language and beginning to understand a person like physically. Yes. And how they move while they play or how they don't move while they Mm -hmm. play. The way that we started playing together was jams at, Matt Stager's house of Stager Microphones. Stager Microphones, shout out. With Teo. Yeah. And we started, we probably did like three or four just like improv jams. And there was always a a couple other people around like. Yeah, because that first iteration of the the Teo Holden was, there was like six people. mm -hmm. You know, there was like a keys player, um, Nathan. What's his name? Aronowitz. Yes. He's a great player. What a vibe, dude. That. Like, if I wasn't the mellow person in the band holding the bass line, he would be. Like, yeah. And he's so good. Um, but because I had started playing with Teo when we were playing with Milk People yeah. before that. That was one of the first bands I joined in Nashville. The legendary uh, Milk People. legendary Milk People. Shout out to Gator. Uh, but yeah, um, and so playing with Teo then, because we played a couple of Teo songs in Milk People occasionally, like trying them out. Um, and only after that was done did did that idea of a group start to form, which is where I met you at Matt Stager's house. Yeah. Uh, and Teo had, um, had hit me up after a couple of those jams and I was at a real low spiritual point in my adult life. Then I was working a job. I hated, I might've just gotten fired from it at that apartment complex. Yeah. Yeah. I was probably, that was probably right on the tail end, right when I was talking to you guys and starting to chill and I, it was just very serendipitous that it came into my life because Teo hit me up and said, hey, me and James are playing at Blue Bear Barn in October. Would you want to play bass? And I said, yes, absolutely. So then we would jam over. The, our first jam spot was over at my house on Stratford. It was in the basement. In the basement. Yeah. Um, and I look back on those times so fondly because that was right at the – like really kicking off my friendship with Josh Norfleet at the same time too, because he was right down the road for me. And I was back in East Nashville. I lived there for the first six or eight months that I was in Nashville, but I didn't really know any musicians. And this is before Millhouse had moved down as well. Yes. So this was like pre-Millhouse. This was pre-me really pursuing music more seriously being in Nashville. And at this point, I was probably in Nashville for maybe a year or two. Um, and I had a friend in the Weird Sisters and a couple of other people that we still run with today. But starting to play with you and Teo was the beginning of really like the professional career in Nashville for me. Yeah, I remember you, uh, you know, saying that you had been 
practicing a lot more, you know, different scales, different, um, different modes, different scales, you know, you know, really expanding your musical knowledge. And that really showed in your playing, I would say, um, from when we first started jamming to where we are now and like where I've seen you play with, um, you know, Violet Moons, you know, when we played with Dustin, you know, just the fluidity definitely increased. Thanks, man. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's something so special, I think, too, about getting to play for an artist that you really like as a side man. I love being a side man. Likewise. And enjoying the people that you're playing with as well. Cause yeah. Because I've been a side man for a while. And I enjoy being a side man. I also enjoy being, you know, a full member of the band. Um, you did an interview with Josh and Felicia. Yes, because you're the drummer of Year of October as well. Um, <laughs> incidentally, I met at Blueberry Barn at one of our uh, uh, trio shows. Really? Yeah. I did not know that. Yeah, they were um, they were playing a show the same night we played there, and they had a different drummer, and uh, I, rem- I remember them distinctly because uh, their drummer showed up with all of his symbols in a uh, in the, like a Santa bag, they called it. It was like a like a Santa satchel. <laughs> oh and, shit! You know me being the gear nerd that I am. You know I got all my symbols in like a nice bag and like a backpack yes. size bag. Um, and so it really struck me. And then it was probably four or five months later that uh, Josh messaged me and was like, "Hey, you want to meet up and play?" And that was you know almost two three years ago now. And I've been playing with them. Written two records with Year of October now. Yeah, Year of October is is a special band. Um, you know, I, I had Josh and Felicia on a couple of months ago, and it was great chatting with them because A, they're cool people, B, they're talented, and C, they have a working class mindset when it comes to music. Because I think a lot of people come here and they want the glitzy, glamoury, my face on th- this shirt or whatever c- kind of bullshit. You know what I mean? They want to see their name in lights. For sure. And a lot of it's about playing the shows. You know, no one wants to play for, oh, no, yeah. for no money, but you make friends. And those friends then go and buy your CD and they listen to you on Spotify and they buy your vinyl when it comes out. When the new record drops, yep. are the first ones in line, you know, making like real connections versus, um, like you said, the glitzy glamour side of things. Well, it's grassroots. And I think the only real way you can attain that is through going to play shows. And you can to a certain degree via Instagram and social media, but those are really just a jumping off point to get people to come out to shows. Of course. So they can really see what it is that you do. Because you, you, you can post live videos all day. You know, you can release as many records as you want. You know, you can put out content and content and content. But until someone, like, comes and sees you live, you know, it's hard to understand the amount of energy that goes into what you are doing. 100%. And it's a lot of energy. Yeah. No, I can think of a couple artists that I was always kind of neutral to that I ended up loving after I saw them live. Arctic Monkey was, was that way for me. And Jack White was that way for me as well because I had always been like, oh, I'm not really a fan of them. Da, 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 da. But like Arctic Monkeys, I saw them open for the Black Keys back in 2011 or 2012. It was uh, in Maine at the Cumberland County Civic Center and uh, at one point when I saw them live, I was like, wow, they were really bombastic and really good. And it kicked off kind of my obsession with them and my love for them. And then I realized, oh, shit, every time an Arctic Monkeys record came out, I got it on the opening 
like the first the release day. Mm. And it was the same way with Jack White. Like Jack White, through the years, I always thought he was good, but there was something I was kind of like lukewarm on him with, you know, like as a listener. But then when I saw him live, I was like, okay, I, I actually do love Jack White. I've, I've bought in every one of his records since I've started listening to music on the day it's come out. Oh, for sure, you know. I mean, because you can listen to an artist's records all day long. Um, but like I said, like until you see them, until you see them perform it, until you see like the most organic version of them putting out that thing that they've created, this music that they've created, you know, um, until you've witnessed it for yourself, it it almost doesn't even doesn't even come close, you know. Um, like there's a band, uh, Turnstile. They're like a they're like a punk band, one of the newer ones. They put out a record last year, but um, and I I listened to them and they were solid, uh, great music. And then I saw them live and I saw how insane they were live, and I was like, it made me appreciate the record that much more. You know, I listened mm-hmm. to the record with much more intensity. You know, with the, with like listening to it, thinking of them, like imagining them playing it in front of me. And it just, it just came across so different. Well, it's, and I've said this about music before, music is the sound of the divine. It's the thing that we cannot explain. Wherever our souls end up, I think at the end of life is where music also lives or where it comes from. There's something that happens when you're sitting down to write a song where time disappears when you're working on music time disappears or when you have a good practice and everybody's locked in and you're like Christ it's been four hours exactly yeah but there's no real way to explain that other than acknowledging that it exists especially to someone like who's not a musician who doesn't get kind of the lifestyle or the or the zone that you get in because you develop this kind of flow the flow state the flow state that you're in with other people um and some people achieve that flow state through all kinds of things you know whether it whether you're an artist and you paint and a surfer a surfer you know whether you're a truck driver and your flow state is the open road like everybody has their flow state and it's something you know but as a musician you know achieving that flow state with other people you know in that community sort of sense it's a it's a different kind of opening of the mind and the soul if you can put it that way i guess when did you start playing drums? Um, I started in, I was in sixth grade, and um, I joined band at my mom's behest. Uh, I tried, like, sports and stuff. I played soccer and football and baseball, and I was awful. I was a chubby little kid. Like, I was just awful. Really? I was a chubster, bud. Uh, I was, too. Yeah, dude. Chubbs McGee, for sure. Um like, my tits were bigger than most of the girls in my class, honestly. Anyway, uh, I, I joined band in sixth grade, and they didn't let you play percussion, like, first thing. That's how the director did it. So, like, we all had to play a, a, some sort of wind instrument, so I played saxophone for, like, six months. And then you were allowed to try out and play drums, and I made it. Um, so I started in concert band in, like, the second half of sixth grade, as it were. Got my first drum set when I was 16... Um, played in marching band in high school and college, uh, went to school for music education, emphasis on percussion for a couple of years, realized that, uh, even though I had had a great band director, he made me want to think I was, a band, I wanted to be a band director. And then a couple of years into school, I was seeing all these people above me graduating and just becoming middle school and high school and college directors. And I was like, mm, 
that's not really what I want to do. Uh, so at the time, I joined a band. I was 19, a band called Charlie and the Foxtrots. And we toured pretty heavily, you know, east to west coast for like four years, almost five years. Um, and that was like my first taste of being a touring musician, being a kit player like out. Because I had played like kit before, but it was mostly like symphonic percussion and percussion ensemble, you know, more concert professional oriented style percussion stuff. And I had played in like small bands and pet bands and church bands and stuff before that. But this was like the first time where I was just a drum set player. Uh, when you were on the road? When I was on the road, yeah. Holy shit, it, I didn't it, know that about it was you. Like, it was like, yo, we're, we've been a band for three months, and we're going to take this thing on the road. And so we practiced. We spent one summer. It was the summer of um, 2013. 20, 2012? It was the summer of 2012, yeah. Because uh, I had finished my second year of college, dropped out, and we moved to Nashville, where three of our members were we met up with some guys here in Nashville. So it was three of us from home back in Statesboro, Georgia, and then three Nashville dudes. Um, we lived in a one, five of us lived in a one bedroom apartment for, oh my for God. four months. How old were you? I was 19. 19. Fuck. That's the kind of shit you do when you're 19. <laughs> that's the though. thing you can only do when you're 19. Yeah. You know? Like if I tried to do that now, I would, I would hate myself. Oh yeah. Uh, like, Couldn't I do like, it. I like, I like having my own bedroom now. I have my own bathroom, you know, it's yeah. like bougie lifestyle at this point. <laughs> 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 but uh, but yeah, we li- so it was two boys in the bedroom, and then th- three of us out in the main room because the when you walked into the apartment, it was like the kitchen and living room with one big room, and then there was a bedroom in the back with a bathroom. So two boys were in the bedroom, three of us were out in the main room, and there were only two couches. So luckily, I had an air mattress that I put in the laundry closet because there was no washer and dryer in this place. And so my, I lived in this little laundry closet for three months. Oh, God, that was crazy. Did uh, you guys have a rehearsal space that you went and practiced at? So we went and practiced. So there were five of us there. Our sixth member, Matt McClure, uh, who plays bass with a band right now called the Harmed Brothers. Uh, I think they're based out of Ohio, Cincinnati. Um, great band. Definitely should look up. The Harmed Brothers. Um, his mom lived on, in South Nashville in Nolensville. And they had a little shed out back. So three times a week, we would go down up to, up, I should say go up to South Nashville because we were living in Smyrna at the time, this little apartment. Oh, shit. Um, so three or four times a week, we'd go up there and we'd practice for like four or five hours. And we got super tight all summer. Um, then we recorded a record and then went on the road for the next four or five years, essentially. Where were you working at at the time? Um, so I had saved some money from school. Um, cause I was working when I was in school. Um, I worked through school and saved probably two or three grand. So it was enough to get up here and then not have to work for three months. Cause at that age you have no fucking expenses except like car insurance. Got no expenses. Like we were, spl- we were splitting rent. It was like one fifty a person. Uh, there was two cars between us. So like. Everyone else like gave gave us gas money to like drive to places. Oh shit! Uh, and we had yeah. just got a van too, the, the shitty little nineteen eighty five Dodge van. Yeah, that we all just piled into and went everywhere together. So I, I rarely drove anywhere. Uh, I had no expenses at the time. It was honestly a golden age. <laughs> when I think back on it now, <laughs> but I, there's something to be said for looking back on the past and realizing 
the good from it, even though you wouldn't necessarily want to go back and replicate that experience oh, yeah. again. Because at the time, I'm sure there was moments that were real fucking hell that you absolutely hated. I mean, it was it was definitely some of the highest points of my life and also some of the lowest points that I've ever experienced in my life. You know, even though I'm surrounded by like four or five other dudes that, you know, all share the same passion that I do, you know, there's never a shortage of feeling alone. Yeah, especially in on this journey because there's no clear-cut path that one can take. And when you're in like a band band, you're depending and relying so heavily on other people having their shit together. You know what I'm saying? For sure. So like as long as each of the six of us had a little bit of our piece of shit together, like we were okay. We were functioning. And we toured, we toured real hard, man. I mean, we went everywhere. We probably went to 40 of the, continu- of the contiguous 48 states, like just hit the road. Was but, that the first time you really got to see the U.S.? Yep, definitely. Um, I, had, I had like been to Washington, D.C. and uh, New York before. I, had, I have some family up in Indiana, so I had been there before. Um, and I think I had come to Nashville once before on like a mission trip in like seventh or eighth grade. Um, but yeah, that was the first time I had really like traveled like that. Um, but I mean, as broke as could be, like we're all just in the van, you know, playing all the shows we can and whatever money we made at the show went towards gas and then went towards, you know, buying three, $5 foot longs from Subway so we could split them twice and you know yeah everybody gets a six inch sub <laughs> which in actuality when you split a subway foot long you you're really getting like four and three quarters inches let's yeah be real oh yeah <laughs> but uh yeah to this day i cannot eat subway you had it too much i will not eat subway i smell it and i just get nauseous like i can't do it yeah there was a phase that i had where um i would go to subway all the fucking time when i lived in my hometown brunswick and now I've had it maybe once or twice since I've left Maine. But there's just certain things that I've eaten so much of that I can I can never go back to. Oh, for sure. I mean, like, I remember growing up, you know, we'd have Hamburger Helper all the time. Like, I can still taste the beef stroganoff Hamburger Helper. Like, sitting here right now, I, could, I, could, I know what it tastes like. And now you're a vegetarian. I have been a vegetarian for almost eight years now, actually. What inspired that? Um, well, like anything, I was dating this girl. <laughs> <laughs> that's an honest answer. Um, that's how the, all things start, obviously. Uh, I was dating this girl, and in the midst of our dating, uh, she became a vegetarian. And then she kind of guilted me into it. And, you know, so like a good boyfriend at the time, I was like, oh, yeah, I'll do it with you. Yeah, no more chicken fingers, no more, no more hamburgers and stuff like that. And I did it wrong for a couple of years. I just, you know, ate like, ate like shit and didn't didn't eat the things I should be eating being a vegetarian, you know, to get the necessary nutrients. Um, and then we broke up and I was like, you know, I'm just going to, I'm just going to do this right. And, uh, started really looking at what I was eating. And that's the biggest thing about it, you know, cause I'm not one of those people that like advocates everyone being vegetarian because like the planet's natural resources doesn't live up to what our needs would be as a species. If everyone is vegetarian, you know, um, but it was really just a personal choice and it made me really take a hard look at what I was putting in my body. 
really made me think about, because in college, you know, it was like, let's just go to the Chinese buffet or I'm going to stop by Checkers and get three cheeseburgers and smash them between classes kind of thing. Yeah, know? yeah. You know, no regard for what was I putting in my body. And, I mean, it's, it's truth, you know, you are what you eat. Um, you know, what you eat and put in your body directly affects your mood. It directly affects... Your mind. Your mind, how you look, how you feel, you know, what you think. Like, it definitely affects everything. And... I mean, I still eat pizza, you know. I won't say that I'm the healthiest eater out there, you know what I'm saying? But you don't turn more, down a Bessie's. I will never turn down a Bessie's, dude. Dude. Okay, uh, side note, pro tip. Um, if anybody has never taken a Bessie's Revenge, which is a fully cheese Bessie's, what you do is you scrape all the cheese off of it, and then you put whatever toppings you want. You put mushroom on there, you put French fries. cheese, little French fries, little buffalo fries. Like, you could put whatever you want on the thing, put the cheese back on, and then bake it. I mean, you can have whatever kind of pizza you want. That's the James Varner special at TH3 practice. The spash, you know, maybe a little onions, a little mushroom, a little green peppers, a little tomatoes maybe. Toss that cheese back on. You're golden. Anyway, um, but yeah, it really just made me, the whole vegetarian thing really just made me take a long look at what I was putting in my body and made me think, you know, maybe maybe I don't need to put cheeseburgers in my body to make me feel good because don't get me wrong cheeseburgers are delicious man i mean instant dopamine hit you you take a bite you're like yeah this is what i needed it's a mouth orgasm it's a mouth orgasm for sure i mean because most most of the foods that are out there today the most processed foods you know you're really it's really just about getting that dopamine hit of this food tastes good you know when you bite into a piece of pizza like it's like God, I could eat pizza every day of my life. But if you, if you ate pizza every day of your life, you probably wouldn't be so healthy. You know, you probably wouldn't feel good in the long run. You wouldn't run. enjoy it as much either. Exactly, you know. And it's about, you know, I don't eat, um, I don't really eat a lot of dairy or ice cream or anything like that. But when I do have some, you know, triple chocolate gelato, God. Changes, you can really enjoy changes it. changes you, man. Yeah. I'm usually like high off my gourd bottle of wine drunk at the house <laughs> like mm, i'm gonna get this gelato right now it's gonna set me right um i mean if you want a good night's sleep man you eat a whole thing of triple chocolate gelato and you're good to go yeah you go into a fucking sugar coma coma dude <laughs> but so, uh so one of the other things you do you work at a forks drum shop forks drum closet yes sir For, forks drum closet excuse me it's all good um, um which is a really great place i mean you're a complete gear nut when it comes to drums and an expert like you will choose a drum set based off of the kind of set list that we have based off of the room that we're in based off of just how you're feeling that night it's like those three things you choose that was that something that you acquired while you started working at forks have you always been kind of a a nut when it comes to gear it was definitely that way when i when i started working at forks because you know before that, you know, I was a broke musician. I played what I could. You know, I played like a beginner, intermediate-style kit, you know, with some cymbals I had bought off Craigslist that sounded okay, you know. And I had a general knowledge of drums, you know, not necessarily how to tune them to make them sound good or why this brand style of bronze works better in certain rooms than the other brand style of bronze as far as cymbals are concerned. Um but working at Forks, because I was bartending, I was bartending and working in restaurants years before, you know, I'd, I worked in restaurants probably four or five years prior to working there. Um, but working there and having to be able to explain to customers 
what's the difference between this symbol and this symbol or why why is this kit better in this situation than this kit? You know, really started to open my mind. And in May, I will have been at Forks for six years. Wow. Um, and it really just opened my mind to what certain rooms need, what what I like personally, because like what I, it's a very subjective game. You know, same for playing bass or playing guitar. You know, it's a very subjective um, as far as what style of cymbals you like and how you tune your drums or what what kind of sticks you use, what or, kind of player you are, exactly. You know, what kind of what kind of situation are you putting yourself in to play? You know, because when we play with the trio, it's a lot quicker, a lot funkier. So I usually play like a smaller bass drum. Um, you know, cymbals that are a little brighter that shine through. Or, you know, if we're playing in a smaller room, smaller cymbals with a darker sound that would still fill up the room but not be overbearing. Uh, when I play with Year of October, you know, we're a big, loud rock band. So I play with... Heavy. I play big drums, you know, 22-inch bass drums, sometimes a 24. Uh, big, you know, huge cymbals that are just loud. I play with a 5B, which is a big, beefy rock-style drumstick. Um but I would never play with a 5B playing with a trio or like when we were playing with Dustin. You know, I play a smaller stick. Smaller stick's more controllable. You know, not as much volume. You know, you can really kind of dial back your sound a little more with a smaller stick. But uh, back to your question, I mean, it's really thinking, thinking about the gear and the way that I started to working at the shop really made me think about two different kinds of players. There's the players that have one kit one set of symbols, one set of one kind of sticks they use, and that's their sound. You know, like John Bonham had his rig. Like you're never going to catch John Bonham playing like a small 20 inch bass drum and a little baby pair of sticks. You know, John Bonham played huge drums with big sticks, and they were loud as shit. Yeah, you know that's the John Bonham style. That's what he did. And then there's the kind of, and that's totally cool. Like if you want to be that, I'm all for it. You know, rock your style, do your thing. But I wanted to go the opposite route. I, I shouldn't say opposite, the other route that is more of a, a Gerald Hayward style, which is more of like, uh, they would call him, or Roy Haynes. Let's take Roy Haynes. He's a, he was a drummer, more like a jazz fusion drummer back in the 80s. And he was nicknamed the chameleon of drummers because like no matter what he did, he could fit into any sort of style of playing. And that's kind of what the route I wanted to go. I wanted to be able to fit in I want to be able to play with a rock band and be, you know, an all-out rock drummer. But then I want to be able to, like, lay it back and play with a, a funky, you know, fusion, funky group. You know, or, or I want to be able to sit in with any singer-songwriter I can and match their energy. Because that's the biggest thing. That's, that's what we're there to do as a rhythm section. Yes, we're and as, as a hired gun. As a hired gun, you're there to serve the music. You're there to match the energy you know, because how many times have you seen a band where everyone up front is a little more reserved? Maybe it's maybe it's more like relaxed style music, but the the drummer's just going so hard. Oh yeah, or the bass player's just going so hard, or the guitarist is just shredding over the music, and it's like that didn't need that, and you can immediately tell when it doesn't need that. Yep, it's really making sure that when somebody who doesn't know the group is watching you guys. It looks like you've been playing together for years. That's an interesting uh, philosophy to take because I would say playing with you and seeing you have played in a, with a bunch of different groups, you know how to fit in 
with whatever you're doing. And it's the, when people see you and I play together with the different artists we've played with, there's two rhythm sections we always get compared to. The first one, of course, is Dave Grohl and Chris Novoselic from Nirvana. Classic. That's when we get a kind of heavy and go all over the place. Oh, yeah, when we do Dumb Skater. Yeah, yeah. when we do Dumb Skater, exactly. And then the other one we get compared to is uh, Pino Palladino and Steve Jordan. Oh, yeah. Which, uh, as far as like players go, I would say both of us, too, we're really rocking players. But if we just need to straight groove the whole time, we can, and that's usually hard to find in a drummer that I've been playing with. Like most of the time they can do one or the other, or they do one seventy-five percent well, and then 25, they can kind of do mm. the other thing. You know what I mean? But I think there's something to be said for listening to a lot of different styles of music. And it sounds like that's kind of what you grew up oh, for sure. doing. Cause you can name all these different fusion players. You know, all the big rock players, you know what their styles are, you know what their gear is. Yeah. It's a more like an, uh, from an educational standpoint, which is why, which is why I'm glad, uh, I went like the educational route. You know, I went through school to do music. I went through, uh, you know, music education in college and got to learn not only from like professors and stuff, but from the people around me. That was probably the biggest thing. Like some of my favorite bands growing up were bands that girls I was interested were into or that people that I thought were cool liked these bands. So then I start listening to these bands and then I do some research on those bands so that I can then talk to whoever it is. Talk to, a, to talk to a pretty girl. Talk to a pretty girl about, you know, the guitarist in this band that I know that they like and they know that, and then they're like, Oh, you like that band too? And you like that guitarist? You know, that, that was kind of the crux of it. Uh, and then you ended up actually liking and it. And then I actually <laughs> liked it a lot. You know, I'll never forget uh, this girl. I was, I was a freshman in high school and I was dating this senior at the time. Damn! But uh, she gave me this Fallout Boys from Under the Cork Tree record. It's their sophomore album. Oh yeah! And that to this day is one of my favorite records. Like when when it's two a.m. and I'm in the car driving, like I I put that record on because I know every word, dude. So it's funny you say that. That was my first live show. Was Fallout Boy on that tour? Damn! It was Are the we going up. Oh, just going down. It's just a matter of time until we're all found. Oh, dude, that song rips. Oh, yeah. So um, it was the Black Dogs and Under... Or it was the Black Clouds and Underdogs tour. Mm. Fall Out Boy was headlining. There was like six other bands on the on the bill. And looking back on it now, it's like they were capitalizing off of Sugar We're Going Down. Which is... That drummer's fucking great. He's like a metal drummer. He's, he is a metal drummer, yeah. He's covered in tats, you know, plays shirtless. He, he's, he rips, dude. Yeah. To this day still. Yeah. Yeah, he's, he, they're great musicians. I mean, I would love to be able to be like, oh, I just liked them when I was like 15 or whatever. Nah, dude, but I'm still into it. They're, they're still good. That you song know? Uma Thurman came out a couple years ago. With the fucking Monsters theme song. Yes. Down, 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 down. I love so that shit. Good. Um, but yeah, they, they were on that tour uh, from first to last, which was Sonny Moore, a.k.a. Skrillex's band. He was on that tour. All American Rejects. Hell yes, dude. Throw me back. Swing, swing, bro. Yeah. And this was right around the time of Dirty Little Secrets, mm-hmm. so they were huge. And then uh, Hawthorne Heights was on it, too. Yeah. And that they were, they were kind of blowing up at the time. And there was this other band called The Hush Sound. Did you ever hear them? No. 
They were another Fueled by Ramen band, but they have this great song called Crawling Towards the Sun. It's phenomenal. If you're listening right now and you've never heard that song, check it out. Um, the keyboard player in that band now plays with uh, Vampire Weekend Live, oh. and she's Ezra, the singer's cousin from Vampire Weekend. So just a little interesting side note Small there. world. Yeah. But what, yeah. What was the name of the band? Uh the hush sounds. The hush sounds. Yeah. The hush sound. Sound. Sound singular. Yeah, singular. Um, but they were really good too. But it was so much fun because um, it was my first rock show. Um, and at the time, I was listening a lot to that. Of course, American Idiot by Green Day was huge. Oh, dude. And that, that's the time that like Boys Like Girls was hitting it big. Yep. You know, I had a girlfriend give me one of those CDs, of course. And I listened to that. Good Charlotte. Good Charlotte classic blink 182 I, they might have been just about to break up back then yeah that was like the tail end of blink yeah also the tail end of like the chili peppers being like good yeah not that not that i don't want to hate on the peppers but like you know there there's definitely a point in there where it's like okay this doesn't have the edge that it used to are you talking about like stadium arcadium would yeah yeah i mean even even californication didn't have the edge that you know uh blood sugar sex magic had yeah um the same could be said, you know, because I didn't get into 311 until many years later, up until probably five or six years ago. Yeah. But there was a point when a lot of those 90s grunge funk bands started going a little more mainstream to capture a, a different audience. Yeah. A, a younger audience at the time. Mm-hmm. You know, because I work with guys who are in their 40s and, um, you know, they went to 311 shows in 96 and 95 when, mm-hmm. when 311 was like a punk, not necessarily, I wouldn't say ska, but like, like a punk band. Yeah. Um, They're from California, right? Mm-hmm. Another Southern California band. Oh yeah. And to this day, I mean, they've been a band for 30 years now. That's, that's another band back to the point we made about, uh, about seeing a band live. Um, I had listened to some 311 and I was really into it. And then I saw them at marathon back in like 2018 and they blew my shorts off, dude. Like they put on such a good show. They were tight. Chad Sexton is one of the tightest drummers out there. And after that show is when I really did the deep dive into 311 and really got into them after seeing them live. Even though I had heard all the same songs before, but listening to them play them live, I had so so much more of an appreciation and respect for the record that they had put out. Yeah. You just did some work, too, with uh, Semi Supervillains. Oh, yeah, Vinny. Our good friend Vinny, Vinny Longy, who was recently a guest on the podcast. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I played on two of their songs. Um on this new record that's coming out, the one, uh, play that rock and roll, play that rock and roll is the name of the record. Um, I think free ride was the name of the song. Joyride. Joyride. That's right. Apologies. I just played drums. Uh, Joyride. And then there was another song I played on and I, I can't remember the name of it for the life of me right now, but it was fun. Used, used a couple different kits, you know, Vinny's, uh, Vinny's like, yeah, man, just bring whatever drums you want. And that's, that's like where I, I feel at home. Like I listen to a track before, you know, he sends me some songs or you know, anybody in that, in that sense, um, you know, sends me some tracks and I kind of get a vibe for the guitar tones they're using, how the vocals sound, what the bass tone is like. And then I can kind of choose the drums I want to play that I feel would match that energy. Yeah. Match that, the tonal qualities, you know, cause on Joyride, um, you know, that has a lot more of like a highway feel. And I was like, I gotta, I gotta pull something out that really um, expresses 
like the feeling of that. So I ended up using uh, my 1950s Gretsch kit. You know, they're kind of tubby, they're big and they're open, but they're not like really overbearing. Yeah. They're not like, they don't have too much low end. They're not taking up a lot of the frequencies. You know, it's really more of a lighter rock kit, if you will. And then like some really bright cymbals and a big loud open snare drum, you know, that really, to, to accentuate all the aspects of the song that are already there and adding what I need to add, but not like, adding too much or taking away from what already exists. It's definitely an art form. And that's, I think what really being a side man is about is you have to be able to read what the song needs Mm. or what the artist wants. Or yes, because sometimes you walk into a side man situation and they might be telling you one thing and describing it one way. But they want something entirely different. For sure, like they like they know what they want, but they don't know what they want because also as a sideman, you know, rolling in uh, fresh, they're not really sure what you're capable of, and so giving them what they ask for up front, you know, and then as you work with them a little more, maybe changing it up a little bit and being like. I could do this instead, like like taking like, liberties, like uh, taking liberties. You know, knowing in your mind what they want, but then also knowing what you want to do and what you think would be better. And there's a, you know, there's an art form in itself to working with frontmen. Oh yeah, that think they know what they want, and you know they know exactly what they want. Like cool, but then like, but like subtly sneaking it in, and you know it's like it's, again it's like dating a girl like making him think it was their idea. Yes. You know, throwing something in there, it's like, you know, maybe changing up something, you know, a feel here or maybe a different symbol there or, you know, maybe putting, putting like as a bass player, like putting the root somewhere where it wasn't before. Yes. Which really just fills out the sound in a way that it hadn't before, but it makes the song work better. There's uh, something you have to really learn how to do, and that is learn the different personality types of the people that you're playing with. You have to be able to understand people and be able to read a room. Oh yeah. Cause you walk in a situation sometimes and it might be just one person deciding everything. Like if you were, if it's like a solo artist or something like that, and it's always kind of different, like playing with Teo, for instance, Teo has an idea of what he wants, but he really leaves it for us to color. For sure. Like, essentially, hey, here's this idea I have. Do what you want. And then only on spare occasions is Teo like, we should do this here instead. Yes. And, like, put that there. And then when that happens, it completely changes the feel. And it's like, oh, that's how this is supposed to go. You know, and then it it builds on what it should have been. Well, Teo is great because he is a fantastic songwriter, but he's also can also shred on guitar like the most technically proficient player I've ever seen that also has a feel. So much feel. Like the notes are effortless. Some of those licks and riffs like, that he like plays. They were, they were already there. He's just expressing them. He knows the fretboard. You know what I mean? And, and, and it's it's funny too. This is something you could say for, for I think for any instrument. The guys who are really Technical, sometimes they lose a little bit of a feel, and the guys who really are just all about feel, sometimes they slide on on the technique side of it. But Teo, I would say, is the perfect combination of both. 
And that was one of the things as I was trying to practice and play better and everything like that. I'm, I was like, I'm going to try and be that except a bass player. For sure. You know? Because cause you, you can play all the right notes in all the right spots. Um, but most of the time, it's about like, where you don't play the notes. Where you don't, because you, you can play all of the notes. Like there's, there's an infinite amount of notes that you can play. In this one section, and some players try to play those and notes. play all the notes. Yeah, some, some players try and play all the notes, and some players try and play the bare minimum of notes. But it's like there's a happy medium in there where you're playing all the notes that should and or need to be played, and there's no extra, and there's there's no, there's nothing you wish was there, and then there's nothing that you wish that wasn't there. Negative space. Negative space. You know, you you play the rests as much as you play the notes. Yeah. Very true. Well, it's it's funny you say that because you're also, I mean, you have this background in playing in band and everything like that. So you're a player that can read music then. Definitely. And you know theory, a little bit of theory sure. probably I took, too. I took theory and piano in college. And, yeah. Because, um, you know, when you, when you look at a written, uh, when you look at a written set of music, generally – you know, a quarter note net lasts this long. An eighth note lasts this long. Sometimes when you're reading a set of music and say there's like an eighth rest and then an eighth note and then an eighth rest and an eighth note, you know, it could have easily been, you know, an eighth rest, a dotted eighth note, and yep. an eighth note. But whoever wrote that music put that eighth rest in there to make sure that there was a breath there, that there was no sound being made in that spot. Mm-hmm. And it... Because when you read it like that, it comes across more staccato versus if they were all connected like general eighth notes are, it would come across a little more legato. So like reading it in that fashion and then, you know, transitioning to a setting, you know, most music we played, you know, here in Nashville, there's no written music, you know. No. You either make your own chords or you just go with it. But visualizing the staccato versus the legato is, I think, is a is a big point as well. Well, it's the right brain versus the left brain as well mm. in terms of music because I knew that the more scientific math brain for my musical abilities wasn't really developed. And what I started doing was I, I was like one of my weak spots and I never have to read music for any gigs in Nashville. I've just, no one's ever called me for like a reading gig. I would be open to it. But, um, I was like, I can't really sight read rhythms well. I can do pitches fine, but reading in time I have difficulty with. So I started going through, there's this book called um, Syncopation for the Modern Drummer. Oh, yeah. By Ted Reed. Oh, yeah. I'm very aware of that book. And I- uh, We sell it at the shop. Yes. It's, it's a classic. Mm-hmm. Um, so I got uh, sticks syn- in- Syncopation Studies for the Modern Drummer? I, it might be something yeah, like uh, that. Yeah, Ted Reed. Um, but I started just getting sticks in a pad and going through this like every day for 10 minutes before I even picked up my bass. And it just made me that much better at developing my time and my rhythm because sure. I was practicing with a metronome constantly. I think playing with a metronome is super, super fucking important if you're a drummer and a bass player. For I'm, sure. If you're or, a, or at least knowing how to. Yes. You know, because... I'll be the first to say that I don't. I generally don't practice with a metronome, but your time is good though. Appreciate you. Yeah, uh, but like you need to know how to play to a metronome, 
Um, you know, you can have all the best timing in the world, but if you get into a studio situation and there's a Met playing and you can't stay on that Met, you're not going to work. No. Like, you got to know how to be on the Met, also play around the Met, and be with the Met at the same time. Yeah. You know, it's, a, it's an interesting thing playing with a Met because you can play to a Met real cold, like very, very stiff playing to a Met. Yes. But it's, about, it's more about um, being able to play to a Met and still sound relaxed. Well, you get a trade-off too because it's like we had that experience of recording with Josh Norfleet. One of the songs we tried with, with a metronome, it just wasn't working. And then we took the metronome off. It was like ripping the condom off. Ripping it, dude. And we, we killed it. <laughs> we just, we killed it after one or two takes mm-hmm. then. And our time was a little sloppy in spots, but that doesn't really matter For when sure. it has the energy. Because sometimes the, sometimes the bridge needs to lay back. Sometimes the chorus needs to push. Sometimes the verse needs to have some flow to it. That's how we record with Year of October. You know, a lot of time, most of the stuff we record is not to a met. Um, We'll, we'll play the song a few times through to a Met to kind of get an idea of where the tempo needs to be baseline. You know, we'll play two or three times to a Met, and then we'll be like, you know, let's just, let's just try this without a Met. We do two, three takes, and we're just flying. We're ripping it, you know. Not, not flying as in, like, speeding up, but, you know. Uh, killing it. Killing it. Smanging you know, it. Smanging it. You're just so much more in the zone when you're not thinking, beep, cook, 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 beep. You know, when you're thinking about the music you're making instead of trying to stay on time. Yeah. There's a difference. Absolutely. In the feel, in the sound, like in the energy and the vibe that you, that you get, get coming across, you know. Because in a live setting, I mean, there are plenty of bands that play to Mets, and that's totally cool. But there's something about, like when you see Jack White, like generally he's not playing to Oh, Matt, no. You know, there's push and there's pull and, you know, things. There's chaos. Here. There's it's, it's controlled chaos. Yes. To a certain extent. You know, as long as we all start and end at the same place, everything that happens in the middle is neither here nor there. Where can people find you at, James? Uh, you can find me on Instagram at the Varner, T H E dot V A R N E R. You can find me on Facebook, but I probably won't respond because I don't get on Facebook. Um, you can find me out with Year of October with the Tail Holden Trio. Uh, and if you need a drummer, give me a shout. Thanks for coming on. Always, bud. Thanks for having me. See you next week. Bye.